Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. So my sermon topic today is why the earnest pursuit of the ministry and the gifts of the Holy Spirit is important for us personally and as a church body. So first of all, I'm going to kind of do a little bit of teaching. Then we're, I'm going to tell some stories and I'm going to have my wife come up and, and tell a story of God uh, bringing healing to her through a dream, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, but first of all, I want to kind of ask, well, what, when I say what are the Holy Spirit ministry and gifts, what, are, what am I talking about when I say that? Well, you know, there are lists in the, in the Bible about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 and, and, in, and in the Romans 12 um, that, that lists some of the things the Holy Spirit does, healing and prophecy and, and supernatural wisdom, supernatural words of knowledge, uh, ability to serve in a supernatural way, even teaching. But, you know, in John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he was saying, you know, the wind moves back and forth as it pleases, and so it is with the Spirit. And so trying to, trying to kind of categorize what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is is kind of like trying to capture the wind because it, it does whatever it pleases. Uh, it doesn't ask our permission most times. And so uh, it's a very powerful and diverse sort of thing. So I would include, along with the, the different kind of gifts that are mentioned in the, in the Bible, you could include divine appointments. Uh, you could include dreams and visions. It talks about in, in Joel 2.28 that when the Spirit comes, dreams and visions come. And even some of the out-on-the-edge things that are in the Bible that we don't really see that much today that I'd like to see a lot more of, like raising the dead, supernatural transportation, and angelic visitations. Whoa. You know... Philip, which was one of the seven kind of uh, helpers that was uh, uh, assigned in, in Acts chapter 6, highlights a whole bunch of these in Acts chapter 8. I mean, boom, 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 it goes down. So, you know, in, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8, he's performing signs and wonders uh, in, in Samaria. And because of that, the people are paying attention to what he said. So, and many people came to the Lord because... He, his word was preached and signs and wonders followed. In verse 26 uh, of chapter 8, an angel comes to him and says, it's time to leave and go to the Gaza road. And so he leaves and goes there. In verse 27, he has this divine appointment where it just happens to be there's this Ethiopian eunuch driving along the road. And then in verse 29, the Holy Spirit speaks to him. says, go up and follow that, stay with that chariot. So he runs up there. Can you imagine? I don't know how fast a chariot goes, but, you know, I hope he had some good shoes on to try to keep up with that. And then in verse 32 and 33, there's this divine setup where as he comes up to the chariot, the eunuch just happens to be reading an Old Testament passage that was a prophetic passage of Jesus. And so he goes up there and says, do you understand what you're reading? You know, and you guys know the rest of the story. 
In verse 35, the gift of evangelism shows. He leads him to the Lord. And then in verse 39, the Holy Spirit supernaturally snatches him away after, right after uh, the unit gets baptized. And uh, he ends up farther north up the road uh, and ends up living in Caesarea up on the coast. And then many years and chapters later in Acts 21, we see him again where Paul is coming through Caesarea and visits him. And at that point, he's got four daughters, unmarried daughters, who are all prophesying. So, boy, you get a whole bunch of the Holy Spirit in Philip just right like that. So, good example in the Bible. So, why should we eagerly desire the ministry gifts of the Holy Spirit? Well, the first reason is that the Bible tells us to. My... uh, granddaughter Josie, uh, I don't know if she's here today, but uh, whenever she gets ready to go to bed and, and uh, she wants my uh, daughter to sing her Jesus Loves Me, she says, for the Bible, for the Bible. And uh, the reason we should, in the same way that uh, we know that Jesus loves us because the Bible tells us so, we need to pursue the gifts of the Spirit because the Bible tells us too. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 Uh, It says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. The word eagerly in that verse is a very passionate verse, a very passionate word. And if you look at the Greek uh, in the the concordance, it really kind of means zealous. And it's interesting that same word is used in, in a negative sense when it describes the attitude that the Joseph's brothers had about him when they sold him into slavery. If you think back on that story and you think about just how angry they were, they wanted to get rid of him in the worst way. And it uses that same word in the negative connotation. And so if you think about that in a positive way, think about how passionate and zealous Paul is saying we should be for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So Bible tells us to. Of course, another reason is that we can see them being used in the example of Jesus. Uh, Paul, or not Paul, but Peter in Acts 2 in the sermon on Pentecost said, you know, Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you guys know. Also, the disciples used them. You know, I've already mentioned Philip, but uh, in in Mark 16, 20, it mentions that the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. And Jesus tells us that we will use them also. In John 12, in John 14, 12, he said, Verily I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. So Jesus tells us that these are things that we should be having. Another reason is that, you know, we're at war here on earth. You know, like the old country song, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. Well, that's kind of like it is here on earth. A lot of times, sometimes as Christians, we kind of think if we come to Jesus and he saves us that everything's going to be fine and all of our troubles are going to be gone. Well, Jesus never said that. And neither did any of his disciples. Jesus said, you know, in this world you'll have many troubles. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we need to remember that we have an enemy that's going around like a roaring lion trying to devour us. And so it would seem like to me 
that to have a, this kind of take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards spiritual gifts when we're commanded to eagerly pursue them might be a little bit unwise and dangerous to us because we need all the tools we can do to put on the armor of God, you know, that sword of the Spirit that it mentions. Uh, we need all of those. So I think it is important also to note that in 1 Corinthians 14.1, when Paul says eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, he says especially the gift of prophecy. So he's already saying with that eagerly word, man, you're supposed to be zealous. And then he says even above that, especially the gift of prophecy. So why is that? Well, one of the things I, I, I believe is that with God, when God speaks, his word is powerful. And prophecy is God basically speaking through us. And so, you know, if you look at the Bible, how did God create the world? By speaking it, didn't he? He spoke the word and the world began. In Hebrews 1.3, it mentions of Jesus. It says, Jesus sustains everything. He keeps everything going by his powerful word. And then in Psalm 46.6, it says, he lifts his voice and the earth melts. Wow, the power of the spoken word of God. And so in the same way, God speaking prophetically through us can create, sustain, and destroy things. He can call out new giftings in people. He can provide strength to endure through a trial. Or he can put an end to a spiritual harassment or bring healing to someone. But because of the power that is latent in prophecy, it can be dangerous and harmful if it's not handled properly. So I think because of that, it's necessary to have proper training for both the giver of prophecy and someone who receives prophecy. And we need to be continually working on growing stronger in this. And boy, we are as a church. You know, I attended a recent practicing the prophetic class this last week and who who was in that class so you look around man was that not a powerful class I mean it the teaching was so good uh, you know we broke up into groups and 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 practiced prophesying over people and man the words of knowledge that were flowing through those groups was amazing and so we have a you know we have a very mature group of leaders of this prophetic team you know, written materials are being developed to guide both the giver and the receiver of prophetic words. And so it's important to, to train people up in this because it is such a powerful tool to advance the kingdom of God. There's, you know, there's things that we need, people need to know about the prophetic. And, and first of all, and, we, and, and they taught this on, on Thursday night in, in our class, is that we need to make sure that our motivation, if we're giving a word, is not for ourselves to be glorified and try to look good, but our motivation should always be our love for the person and the desire for Jesus to be glorified through what we say. And we need to let people know that a word should be tested. And, you know, Brock says this all the time whenever we have prophetic ministry. You know, if you receive a word, test it. Um, and and it, it also mentions the Bible that other prophets are supposed to test words. And so we're going to be learning more and more how to do that. We need to understand that a word given may not be fulfilled for years. A lot of times you receive a word, and if it doesn't happen by the end of the week, you know, you think, well, it must not be from God, you know. Well, you know, God told Abraham he was going to have a son, and it happened 
I think 30 years later or something like that, you know. And, you know, in the meantime, he and Sarah tried to kind of make it happen, you know, and it didn't work out well, you know. So we need to remember that we need to trust God for the timing, and it may not happen as soon as we think. Also, we need to understand that sometimes the opposite of what the word given to us uh, says may happen. You know, when uh, Joseph uh, had this dream, a prophetic dream about his father and brothers bowing down to him, you know, I think he made the mistake of actually sharing that with them. Probably not a real smart thing to do, but, you know, he shared that with them. And what happened? Well, the exact opposite happened. They, they almost kill him and they sell him into slavery and he's in slavery and in prison for years before that word eventually is fulfilled. So we need to remember that that sometimes happens. Not always, but sometimes. And then we need to remember that the word likely won't be fulfilled in the way you think it's going to be fulfilled when you receive it. You know, a lot of times when you receive a word, you kind of think, oh, I think I know what he's talking about there. I think I know how God's going to do that. Probably not. Probably not. God is way wiser than us. And as the Bible says, his ways are not our ways and thoughts are not our thoughts. So now I'm going to tell you, uh, have some, a few personal stories about the history of, of myself and my wife uh, with the Holy Spirit. So um, my pursuit of spiritual gifts kind of started as a teenager. So uh, the church that I grew up in was one of those churches, I guess you would call it a word-only church. So they'd kind of taught that the spiritual gift had passed away once the apostles died off or the canon was finished. or I, It was one of those two things. I can't remember. It was one of those. And so, you know, that's that's what... I was taught, and that's what my parents were taught. They both grew up in this, in this denomination. And so uh, that was what we believed. Well, when I was a wee little lad, uh, I'm not sure, what, it was early 60s, I think, um, our church was going through a struggle of some kind. And so my mom was pacing the floor in the living room, very upset. And she was praying to God, saying, God, why is this happening? Why are we fighting? We all believe the th same things. We believe the Bible. And as she was praying, she heard this still small voice within her say, You need the Holy Spirit. Well, that set her on this trajectory of trying the best she knew how to uh, pursue the Holy Spirit. And so I would grow up going to this church but on Sunday morning before I went, we would watch Oral Roberts on television. Oral Roberts and the World Action Singers. Something good is going to happen to you, happen to you this very day. I got to listen to that once a week for many years. So, when I was a teen somewhere, mid-teens, you know, I'd been kind of hearing both sides of this argument. <laughs> and so finally, I remember writing this little one-page treatise on why I thought the gift of tongues was still appropriate for today. I don't know why I did it. I didn't give it to anybody. I just wrote it. But I wrote it, and I, I have this memory of lying down in my bed one night and asking God to fill me with his Holy Spirit. And I just sat there, and nothing happened. For 16 years or so, he did answer it. And that's why, you know, sometimes he doesn't answer in the timing that you think. So many years later, as in my early 30s, and my wife and I had been married for several years, and 
God started touching us and started uh, moving us towards uh, pursuing the Holy Spirit in a, in a really powerful way. And so we were told by a guy to go where it's happening. So we'd, we'd go to every meeting we could think of and heard of, and I'd get prayed for, you know. And, you know, Oh, the Holy Spirit's all over you. It's all over you. And I was like, I don't feel anything. You know, and that went on and on and on. And so finally in June of 1993, I went to this business conference up in the Seattle area. And while I was there, some other friend told me about these series of meetings that were going to go on there. And so I decided to go to them. And so I went on Sunday morning, and man, this guy was ministering. And I mean, he was powerful. I mean, he was praying for people, and they were falling all over the floor and all this crazy stuff going on, you know, powerful worship. And so after the, after the sermon, I go down front, and, you know, he prays for me. You know, nothing happens. But, man, I thought, man, this is powerful. I'm, I'm going to go for this. And so I was going to be there until Wednesday morning. I was flying out on Wednesday morning, and they were having services on Sunday night, Monday night, and Tuesday night. So I'm like, I'm going to every one of those services, and I'm going to start fasting right now. Try to, you know, see if I can talk God into doing something, you know. So I start fasting from food, but I still drink stuff, including Cokes, which is probably not a real wise way to fast, but it was what it was. And I go back on Sunday night, and I go up for prayer, you know. Here she comes on a Honda. Nothing happens. So I go back on Tuesday night, you know, go up for prayer. Nothing happens. Then his assistant takes me aside and prays for me for about 30 minutes. Oh, he casts off all these things off of me, and he's doing all this stuff. I don't feel a thing, nothing whatsoever. So I got one more night. I go back Tuesday night. I'm flying out the next morning. I walk into the church, and I mean immediately as I walk in there, I start feeling these butterfly kind of feelings in my stomach. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, drinking all those soft drinks for the last three days is catching up on me. But it just kept happening during worship, during his sermon. And then at the end of the sermon, he said, if you want the Holy Spirit, you know, come on up. So I go up again. <laughs> and I go up to him, and he kind of looks at me. <laughs> He's probably tired of seeing me. But anyway, he looks at me and says, if there's anything you haven't given over to God, I want you to do it right now. And immediately what came to mind was this particular act of service that God had had been prompting me to do, and we haven't been doing it because of various and sundry reasons. But as he said that, that came to mind, and I said, okay, God, I'll do that. And I mean, immediately when I said yes to God in my mind, that fluttering stuff <laughs> came right out, and I mean, I started speaking in tongues like a banshee. <laughs> Oh, my goodness, and the feeling was so wonderful. It was just like there was like somebody moving my tongue, and I had this buzzy, warm feeling all over me and this feeling of peace and joy, and it was just awesome. So that's my story about the gift of tongues. And so, uh, you know, just to encourage you, sometimes the timing of it isn't exactly like you'd like, and, uh, but God honors someone who's like the persistent widow, you know, Keep asking, keep asking, keep asking, and, and he will answer in his time. Um, several years later, um, I, was, uh, I was in a really bad place. Uh, you know, I didn't have a job, and we were virtually bankrupt. I was kind of had 
kind of spiraled down to this spiritual depression, really depression in general. And uh, my wife had kind of lost trust in me, and and it was just, you know, I had family issues, and it was just a really, really bad time. And I remember one Sunday afternoon, Catherine and I were just sitting in bed, and we just started crying, you know, because it was just, everything seemed so hopeless. And uh, so we finished crying, and, you know, we were going to a church at the time, and there was a small group being held uh, as part of the church that was not too far from us. And so we decided we'd get up that night and go to that small group. And so we'd get there, and it was, a, it was in a house, but it was pretty big. You know, they had ch- chairs lined up in the living room, so there was a bunch of people there. And so we kind of walk in, and kind of we didn't really know it, that many people that well, and we just kind of walk in and sit down in one of the chairs, you know, and act like everything's normal. You know, put on our little masks that, of, that we're, we're okay when we obviously weren't. And during that time, uh, the leader of the small group, he got up and he just looked at us. And he basically started reading our mail. Uh, reading our mail. Um, basically, you know, letting us know that he saw the pain that was within us and the trouble that we were going through. And then he promised that the Lord was seeing this and the Lord would bring us out of it. We both just started weeping. You know, it was, it, was, it was such a word in season. It was something that we needed so desperately. Something to hang on to with hope that eventually we're going to crawl out of this pit that we were in. And it was so wonderful. And, you know, it, it wasn't that anything happened the next day. Uh, it was a process, but it was a process that we had that to hang on to. And it was so powerful. I don't know how long after that, a few weeks, uh, a few months, I don't remember exactly. Uh, I had a divine appointment. You know, I talked about that as one of the ways that the Holy Spirit moves. I was pumping gas at Sam's Club right over, over there, I guess it is, on Memorial. And I look up, and there is a gentleman named Jim Hilton. And some of you know Jim Hilton, some of you don't, but he's a, he's a pastor, um, and uh, I knew about him because he had taught at a school I'd gone to, a ministry school I'd gone to years before. And, and I knew he had this history of the revival kind of following him wherever he went. And so he was kind of a hero of mine. And so he didn't, I knew him, but he didn't know me. Uh, so I went up and introduced myself to him. And I basically kind of said, you know, I need a mentor. Would you be willing to meet with me? And he said, yes, he would. And so... Over the next several months, I had a chance to get to know him and spend time with him. And uh, through his influence, he was this man of influence. Uh, you know, I got a spiritual mentor, but he also found me a job, a day job, that paid very well for a season. And then it was also through him, his influence, and also, <laughs> coincidentally enough, talking about divine appointments, you know, Silas was up here getting dedicated. His mom, Carrie is my niece, and just happened to be during that time, my niece was working at the country club food place where Jim Hilton's neighborhood was and where he lived. And so he knew the, the club pro there, and of course, Carrie worked for the club pro. And so it was through both of those influences, I got a meeting with the club pro there and started my company today that I have 
I started in this neighborhood right there with seven customers, and now I have over 2,000 customers. And it all started with that divine appointment in the Sam's Club gas station. It's crazy. All right, here's another crazy story my wife's going to tell. A dream. Last fall, I had a dream where I walked into a room in an old house, old two-story house. There was only a bed and a chair in this room. And I sensed something wasn't settled. Then two little girls crawled out from under the bed, one on one side, one on the other. The one on the side of the bed where I was sitting, I reached out to her. I knew she was three years old, and I asked her name. And she said, Magnolia. She climbed into my lap. I reached out to the other one, but she was she would squat down on the other side of the bed so I couldn't see her, and then she'd peek her head up over and look at me, and then she'd squat back down. I asked her what her name was, and she just kind of said, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite understand it. I couldn't hear her, her well, and I asked her again, but I couldn't understand it. Pretty soon, she got into my lap, and I didn't ask her her name again, but I knew it had been an old family name. So I was holding both the girls in my lap, and I could sort of feel them physically sitting in my lap, but I knew they weren't quite human, and I knew I needed to pray for them. I sensed Jesus standing behind me and telling me what to pray for them, and it was, let Jesus take you the rest of the way home. So I prayed that, I opened my eyes, and they were not sitting on my lap anymore. They were gone. And that was the end of my dream. So I'm telling Wallace this dream while we're having coffee. And he, he got, he teared up. He got very emotional, which surprised me, because that's not like him. But he said, he wondered if these little girls represented two babies that we lost back in the 90s um, from miscarriage. I was 14 weeks with each of them, and um, what I knew about the other little girl that didn't say her name, I knew she was four years old, and the one I knew was three years old, so they were one year apart. These miscarriages happened exactly one year apart, and so Wallace wondered if this dream kind of represented that. Um, also, my dream was November 1st, and November was the due month for both of those babies. So. This was the early 90s. This last fall, this has been over two decades since those miscarriages. And I realized I just still really hadn't let it go. You know, I would imagine where they were in their phases of life, like some of my kids were going through, getting married, having kids, buying houses, and I would imagine that with what would have happened with these two. At times, I would even ask God, what was that all about anyway? Um, he had healed me of infertility. I'd had Samuel in 94, and then this happened in 1996 and 97. So all these years, I kept asking him why this had happened. You know, you're God. You could have stopped this. But I knew that with this dream, 
it was time to let Jesus take them the final way home. Those babies were lost, and they are still a vital part of our history. But now it's like our history has been rewritten, like the song. The why was never answered. I still don't know why it happened, but I knew a missing link had finally been resolved. Simply letting them go healed my heart through a dream. Now, the icing on the cake, you know, I, I didn't know what that other little girl's name was. We would go to sunrise that morning. This was on a Sunday morning that I had that dream. Told Wallace, we go to sunrise. He's reading out a revelation, and he reads Jasper and Carnelian. And I'm like, Carnelian, that was her name. Carnelian, that's a strange name. But remember, it was like I knew it was an old family name. My dad's name is Cornelius. His grandfather's name is Cornelius. His great-grandfather's name is Cornelius. So I just knew it was an old family name. And when he said Carnelian, bingo. I have a Magnolia and a Carnelian in heaven. I think Jesus has a really fun way of rewriting history. I married up, folks. <laughs> Proud to say it. The last thing I want to share is, uh, and then we're going to have a ministry time, a prophetic, the prophetic team's going to come up, is uh, an event that happened about a, started happening about a year and a half ago. I was sitting right up in here on the prayer team on one Sunday morning, and, and Mike Milner just happened to be standing beside me. And as we're waiting for, you know, for prayer time, this lady comes up, her name was Mindy Wilson, and she came up for prayer. Mindy and her husband David had been members here years ago, but they had moved to Guam where David was a pilot. But she was back visiting family uh, during this time, and she came up for prayer. And during the, the, she came up, and she was just kind of weeping because she was sensing the presence of, the, of God so heavily here in the church and just expressed how much she missed that uh, from because she just wasn't able to experience that in Guam. She didn't have any place that, that she could go to experience that. And, and then she also mentioned, you know, some heartache that she had over uh, some ministry opportunities that she had pursued that had kind of been squashed and stuff. And so, so both Mike and I had compassion for her, you know, and we prayed for her. And after the prayer was over, I don't, I don't know how this happened or, you know, what made me say it. But I said, you know, what needs to happen is OLCC needs to plant a church in Guam. And Mike Milner was right beside me. And, and uh, when I said that, he thought to himself, he told me later, I thought to myself, you can't say that. Well, right as he was thinking that, the Holy Spirit kind of punches him in the stomach, and he just goes over, and the Holy Spirit starts touching him, and he starts weeping. And so now I got Mindy weeping, and I got Mike weeping, and I'm just kind of sitting there, you know. As I said the word, I was like, I, I just thought of the outrageousness of it, you know. How would we ever plant a church in Guam, you know? Well, so... Mike had that experience, and so the next following Tuesday, he's at a staff meeting here, and he kind of shared what had happened that Sunday. And as he shared it, 
those same emotions he got on Sunday morning resurfaced in a powerful way. And it surprised him and the others in the meeting. Then later on that day, he finally decides he's going to tell his wife about it. (laughs) And so as they're driving home in the car, he tells her what happened on Sunday morning and then again what had happened in the staff meeting. And, you know, expecting her to, you know, probably say, well, you know, I don't know what you're saying, but I, I don't want to move. You know, I, I like it here. Well, to his surprise, Jen immediately says, I'd plant a church in Guam. And she starts crying. So now we've got all that going on. So Mike's still trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. So he takes Jen home, and then he comes back and has a meeting with Brock that was scheduled for something, and they ended up spending the whole time talking and praying about these experiences. And so Brock, in his wisdom, finally says, well, Mike, what do you sense the Lord speaking to you about this? And so as Mike was praying and hearing, he started seeing these visions of him working with the homeless on the streets in Guam and having church. And he saw himself working with the Guam uh, national football team, which is soccer to, to me, but uh, to him it's football, um, working with the football team. And so as we took these experiences, we started saying, well, God, are you starting to do something here? So after many more months of prayer and counsel and research, uh, the Milners and, and OLCC sensed that they were called to Guam to plant a church. And they moved there last August. And in fact, this weekend, they had their first public service. So, And the Milners lived next door to David and Mindy, <laughs> which is pretty cool. The ministry to the homeless is already happening. And this month, Mike said he's starting to coach soccer with some guys near the national team's area. He's not doing anything with the national team yet. But Brock really feels like uh, that as, as time goes on. So sometimes, you know, I'm still pinching myself about this whole situation. Did this really happen, you know? So I guess in part and parcel, I kind of want to explain to you, this is the OLCC method of church planning. <laughs> Let the Holy Spirit lead us. Okay. So, last thing, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So I would encourage you, and I would encourage us as a church, to drink deeply from the Holy Spirit. Actively pursue the gifts of the Spirit. Be zealous. Go where it's happening. Ask, knock, and keep knocking. And I'm just convinced that God's going to answer. We're going to see great and glorious deeds done in the kingdom as we do that. Amen?